0: We're going to read the Bible together just now. So let's turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 17. If you're visiting this evening or perhaps you haven't been here in a while on Sunday evenings, we have been looking at this book of Revelation for quite some time now. We've reached chapter 17 and John is going to be taking us through a couple of chapters this evening. So we're going to read all of chapter 17 and the first little bit of chapter 18 and he's going to come later and read some of chapter 19. I should say to you that if you're you're visiting or you're new, this will seem very strange to you, what we're about to read. Um, but you've got to stick with it. It is a particular genre of Scripture that is unfamiliar to us. It's apocalyptic literature. There are lots of pictures in here that sometimes can be complex for us to understand. But they are written to instruct us and to encourage us as believers. So let's listen to God's Word as we find it in Revelation chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and of the Abominations of the Earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was now is not and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was now is not and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. By agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendour. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great! She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. I told you it was weird. We're looking forward to John unpacking that for us in a few moments.
1: Well, if you'd like to keep your Bibles open with me, this is definitely going to be interesting anyhow, Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 and Revelation 19 verses 1 through to 10. So we're going to attempt to do this, yes, supper club, supper club I'm told, people are getting out quick, quick (laughs) before we begin. So if you're supper club age, you get to go and get some toast and tea and hear different little things. About Jesus. So Okay. So Revelation chapter eighteen, uh, seventeen, chapter eighteen, and the first ten verses of chapter nineteen. Here's our way that we're going to chart through this. It's up on the screen. Worshiping in Babylon, but en route to a wedding banquet, okay? So who are we? We are the people who are worshipping in Babylon. What is Babylon? Babylon is the world, but we want to remember this evening that we are en route to a wedding banquet. So whenever all seems hopeless, whenever all seems desperate around us, we've got to remember this, okay? Worshipping in Babylon, that is who we are right now, but we're en route to a wedding banquet. Now, the feeling of being in enemy territory isn't great, Okay? The feeling of walking in to meet your in-laws for the first time is not a great experience. You can remember that, your new girlfriend or your new boyfriend, and you walk in to meet the parents for the very first time. It's a nerve-wracking experience. You walk in, and you're under the glare of the mother and the suspicion of the father, and then the questions begin, the awkward judgment. And then you start to reflect on yourself, how am I standing Am I smiling too much? Have I something in my teeth? It's, and it's a difficult few minutes, right? And the whole situation is stressful. It's not pleasant. And you're just thankful to make it out alive. Well, this evening, in a serious way, I want us to recognize that we are in enemy territory. We live in enemy territory. Now, we gather here in this place on a Sunday and we are under God's rule, we are God's people here in this place, and Hill Street, this church, is like a little outpost, an outpost in a dark world. Can you imagine what it's like if you're out in Afghanistan or Iraq during one of the wars, and you were in a little compound, and you're trying to hold that compound, and as the bullets uh, and as the shells rain in upon you, it's difficult. You're in an, an outpost in an enemy country. Well, so too are we. And it's difficult. It's difficult to be out in the world as Christians. And it's also difficult because of the internal struggle of sin. So we face the secular world and all of its lures that we're going to look at. But we also face sin inside of each of our own lives. The mess of sin, the brokenness of each of us. So in a gathering this size, there will be some of us here this evening who are dealing with depression who are dealing with eating disorders, anxiety issues, family breakdown, relationship breakdown, maybe relationship abuse? There will be different addictions amongst the people who are gathered here. There will be financial issues, but people who are, are seem to be overrun by sin. Some of us here will hate our job, will have self-confidence issues, will hate our bodies, will be struggling with our identity. Some may be struggling with their sexuality, some struggling with their home life. So in the midst of all of this mess, in the midst of all of the mess of our lives and the mess of the world, the brokenness of people and of ourselves, in the midst of sin, in a, mess, in a messy and a broken world, know this, that you are in Babylon. But if you're a Christian this evening, that you are on your way to a great wedding banquet, a wedding banquet where we will have peace and enjoy God forever. So let's rewind a little bit. Let's fill in the context of what's going on. Revelation chapter 16. So Revelation chapter 16, instead of describing the battle of Armageddon, the scene moves to the final judgment. And that's where we pick it up in Revelation 17 and then 18 and then into chapter 19. So, what's going on here? Well, it's this. If we we worship the beast on earth, then it's described in two ways. If we don't worship God, we worship the beast. So chapter 17, the whole of chapter 17, describes the beast, describes the world as a prostitute or a whore or a harlot. And then... John sees exactly the same thing, only it's described in a different way as we come into chapter 18. This time, instead of the world and all of her attractions being described as a prostitute or a whore or a harlot, it's described in chapter 18 as a great city. So here John sees the great city. It's the same as 17, only it's described a little differently for us. These two images portray and present exactly the same thing. And what, what is going on? Well, In one way, Revelation chapter 17, which Pete read for us, it talks about all of these hills and horns and all these different strange things that's going on with different kings and kingdoms. In one way, this, at its time that it was written, was Rome. And it was a foreshadow, a foretaste of all the different kingdoms that would come. And it would have its climax at the end judgment. So, this isn't something that we're just looking for once, but it repeats itself. History repeats itself again and again. And we can see it where it talks about the beast. The beast in verse 8 was, now is not, and will come up. It has happened, it will happen again, and it perhaps is happening right now. So, it's a cycle. This beast returns in other guises, and then it passes away. So many times in history, it has appeared like the judgment of the end of the age. If we were alive at the time of Rome, it appeared like it was the end. At the time of the USSR and its downfall, it appeared like the end. At the time of Nazi Germany, it appeared like the end. So chapter 17 and chapter 18, they paint what it will be like in the final judgment, but also they show us what it can be like now here on earth before the final judgment. So John lays that out for us here, Revelation 18, Revelation 19, the same image repeating, just described in different ways. So this brings us to our first point this evening, and it's this, simply Babylon and the prostitute. It's the seduction and the attraction of the world, or if you like a little catchy phrase for it, it's sin city. Now we all know what it's like to be lured into something. Uh, I don't know what it is about children, but children seem to be lured towards hot irons. I don't know what it is. I don't know if this has happened in your home. But I remember one day, mum told me, John, don't touch the iron. If you tell a kid not to touch something, what do they want to do? They want to touch the iron. So I was at the back door, mum went outside to hang out washing or whatever it was. And what did I do? I walked over to the iron and I put my hand straight onto the iron. Scalded my whole hand. My whole hand. And uh, I knew that I'd get in more trouble if I told mom what I'd done. So Mum asked me, John, how did you, you hurt your hand? And I said, I got a trap in the door. Told a lie, obviously, not advisable. But I was lured towards this iron, right? And we all know what it's like to be lured to other things. If we're on a diet, we seem to be increasingly lured towards ice cream and chocolate and crisps. And as we uh, come towards Christmas, perhaps we're trying to diet, and then all of the nice Christmas food comes out, and we're lured towards it. Or if you're a golfer here, perhaps you're lured towards a new driver for your bag. Or if you like clothes and you're a shopper, then you're constantly lured into shops. It's why our world spends so much money on advertising campaigns. We are a people who are easily lured. We'll know this, that our enemy is an expert at luring us into his trap. What does that mean? It means as Christian people we must be on our guard because our enemy here in chapter 17 is presented like a great prostitute, first one. This great prostitute comes and lures us in. She is powerful. This woman comes and she is riding on the beast, verse 3, who is Satan. And this is his way of combating against the church For all the good that the church does, for all the things that the church offers, for all of the things that the church should represent, here comes this woman, this great prostitute, and she's on the opposite side trying to attract and pull everyone away from church into her ways. So the world personified as this whore who is seductive and attractive for all who glance at her, verse 4. And she's depicted here in such a way that she is toxic. It takes very little for her to entice us to walk towards her. She hypnotizes us. She strangles us. We can see it here even with John in verse 6. I was astonished whenever he sees her. She's powerful. She has dominion over the kings of this world, verse 18. And she is seated on many waters, verse 1. And her power has enabled her, verse 2, to have successfully tempted all the kings of this world. She has lured them into her bedchamber, and they have committed adultery with her. They have slept with her. This is an allusion picked up from the Old Testament, that sexual sin is a symbol of spiritual unfaithfulness. And the sensual picture is continued with the drink that we find. She gets drunk, drunk on, on the blood of the saints this uncontrollable persecution of Christians. She's dressed with fine clothes and with riches and impurities. This woman is a powerful temptress whose name is mystery. She is veiled so that many cannot see her and see her power. But she is Babylon. So she is the very essence of rebellion against God. Her influence is global, extending over all peoples and all nations Verse five, against God and against the church in verse six. What does this woman embody for us? How do we start to translate this into our culture? Who is she? What way does she manifest herself other than the world? Well, as we start to think through it a little bit, it's in all the different isms, individualism. She attracts us away from the church towards individualism, a selfish outlook, or maybe towards materialism, you come come with me and indulge yourself. Maybe it's towards hedonism, it's all about your pleasure, your happiness, and every other ism that's opposite the church. And she presents herself as if she will give you everything. And it's all fake. All fakes, all phonies of church. She tries to present herself as an alternative. But she's not. It's attractive, it's powerful, and it's what we as the church fight against. And the temptation for us is this to go and live with this prostitute. She looks at you and she offers you something that you desire. She catches your eye from just even a sideward glance. She calls you and she reaches out to you. She follows you, she's constantly trying to get your attention. And this is what we fight against in this world. This is what we walk away from. This city and all of its apparent benefits. In the chapter 18, we can see it. The riches and the sexual enjoyment, the killing and the thriving business and the best clothes and the highest luxury. That's what it offers. Yet in this city that's called Babylon, as it offers all of these different things, as it offers you power power, as it offers you satisfaction, as it offers you an alternative to church, as it offers you your best life, well, if we look closely on its streets, what do we find? Well, on the streets of this city, people are running around like heroin addicts trying to get their latest fix. The city of Babylon and the prostitute offer a great time, but many, many people lie in the gutter in this city. Gaunt and gnarled up, distorted and twisted, roaming the streets hungry, deserted and empty. This is what the world, this is what the temptress really offers death and darkness, empty promises, no contentment, no satisfaction. So it's a load of smoke screens for us. It's a lot of distractions. And how does this all end? Well, chapter 17, this great orgy of chapter 17 ends, and then into chapter 18, this great celebration that we had of the world in 17 ends in a wake in chapter 18. Look at it with me in verse 9 and 10. The kings mourn. You see how it all starts to break down, how it all starts to crumble, how this life of individualism and materialism and hedonism and all the other philosophies that this world tries to impose upon us, that tries to say that are good, it all starts to break down. They're left in mourning. So we see that the logic of our world starts to break down, and we can see it already, can't we, as, as we live in Northern Ireland, as we start to see uh, how, how logic doesn't seem to hold up. There's no longer any truth. It's really hard to debate someone because they just say that they don't care. You can believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe. We see ridiculous arguments created around this whole abortion legislation Arguments that say how much joy or how much happiness will this person have? And if they don't have enough joy or enough happiness, well then it's it's every right of ours to end their life. No rights for a father. No self-control. And logic will not hold up. We can love whoever we want to love. But actually in reality we don't believe that. Because we still have laws. We still have parameters around who people can love. We still have laws that protect children from paedophiles. The logic starts to break down. It starts to fall apart, and we see it here. This great celebration now turns into a wake. And for some of us here this evening, if we're honest, we find ourselves in this bedroom. We're in this bedroom of this great prostitute because she's tempted us in. She has enticed us in. She's lured us in. We have taken up residency in this city. But I trust this evening that you're able to see, like the prodigal who chased the world, that you find it unsatisfying and empty. And we thank the Lord that there's another community, another community that we can talk about, another way to live. And that's our second point, worshiping in Babylon. Worshiping in Babylon. Babylon when we hear stories about persecution from other countries, it seems like a different world, doesn't it? I'm going to read one report from 2014. 2014, in one month, persecution of the Christian church read like this. Fourteen Egyptian churches burned to the ground. House church leaders sentenced to Iran's infamous Evin prison. Eighty Christians murdered in North Korea for merely owning a Bible. Believers kneel to a cross in Syria. Persecution of the church in one month in 2014. And as we start to think about worship and think about how do we live in Babylon, in Northern Ireland for us, our persecution levels are not like that. But we are a step further down the line than where we were 10 years ago. But what is our call? What what do we have to recognize tonight as we work our way through this? Well, it's this, that here at Hill Street, at Hill Street Presbyterian Church, as we gather to worship, we are this alien outpost for Jesus in Babylon. Too often what we do is we look at this temptress, this, this great prostitute, this way of the world with sin, and we walk past her, and we almost smile at her, or we glance at her, or we wink at her. We have to see that we are in this battle 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So it's crucial for us as we live here and as we gather from week to week in this little outpost that we worship God. So what does worshiping God actually look like for you? Because if we're going to sustain ourselves through this, if we're going to get through this battle, we've got to understand this. What does worshiping God actually look like? And as we start to think about worshiping God, I wonder this evening if I was to ask you, what is the most difficult thing about being a Christian? What would you say? What's the most difficult thing? Or what's the thing that is most likely to make you walk away from being a Christian? And whatever our answers are for them things, the key, the key to this is heart worship. Here's what one commentator says about worship. Without the heart, it is not worship, it is stage play. Another commentator says this. Worshiping is adoring the contemplation of God as he has revealed himself in Christ and in his word. See, worshiping, as we gather here Sunday after Sunday, We're gathering into this place to worship our God as people who are scattered in darkness, but we come into this place and we lift high the name of Jesus. So as we come to worship, we savor Christ. We treasure Christ. We're satisfied with Christ. So when you think of adoring him and enjoying him, how do you do that? How is it that you enjoy Christ? Do you enjoy Christ as a Christian here this evening? Do you enjoy him? Do you truly love him? Do you see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory? Or, or really, whenever we talk about enjoying Christ and, and loving him and treasuring him and savoring him, you really don't understand it. And you know what? Perhaps for many years, churches have been really, really bad at this. As we gather our people, we have given them a poor vision of who Jesus is. We have not preached the full counsel of God. We have not led people into the ways of God. We have not explained who he is clearly enough. But here in this place, week after week, the session and Nigel and Pete and myself, it is our, it is our goal, our desire that we would help each one here as they worship the Saviour Jesus to enjoy him, to love him just a little bit more. As you come along Sunday after Sunday, if you can love Jesus just a little bit more each and every week, that's our aim as we gather in the worship in this place, that we adore him. So worship is key. Whenever we come here, we don't just go through the motions. It isn't just a drudgery but we actually cherish Christ, that we cherish God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we savor him. Whenever I was thinking about savoring, I, I, I was trying to understand it in my own mind. What, what does it mean to savor something? And the first thing that came to my mind, I don't know if this is right or not, but the first thing that came to my mind, do you know uh, 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 Pringles, right? And do you know the Texas barbecue Pringles that you get? I don't know if any, some people are laughing, some people know what I'm talking about. And you get the Texas barbecue Pringle and it's covered in its flavour, and, and I don't know if this is just me, but you lick it, right? And the, the flavor is so strong, and then you maybe get the Pringle in your mouth, the full Pringle in, and you just let it sit there. And you let, it, you let all, the, all the flavor of the Pringle sort of explode through your mouth, and it's, it's class. And then you take another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, because you can't stop, right? But that idea of savoring, just sitting and enjoying Christ, so that as we come here, that it's not, it's, if, if we come here and it's just going through the motions, If we come here and you don't see Jesus for who he is and love the Father and adore him as we adore him in our prayer of adoration and confession and as we sing his praises, then I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we don't present Jesus in a way that you can see him in all of his glory, what he is like, who he is, and the wonder of Jesus. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, worship service after worship service through the reading of the word, through praying and singing and preaching. Because if we want to worship God, if we truly want to be Christian people that gather into this place as an outpost in the midst of Babylon, then worship must engage our emotions. And sometimes as Presbyterians, we're scared to say that. It has to. How can we love someone? How can we love Jesus if we don't have any emotional connection to him? Worship should move us. It should move our emotions. It should move our hearts. It should move our minds. It should move our feelings. So that all are engaged through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we are strengthened and renewed and transformed to be more like a son. So each week we grow in our love. Why? Because it's the whole point of redemptive history. From the garden to the new heaven, we have been chosen. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, to proclaim his excellencies, to come and to worship him as king of kings and lord of lords and live our lives for him. Not just on a Sunday, but then as we scatter out. Where are we getting this all from? Look at Revelation chapter 19 with me. Revelation chapter 19. We're going to read this. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 1 through to 10. This is the, the best worship service that we could ever be in, right? Babylon has fall, fallen. She has been judged, right? We can see it in, in verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea, right? She has been destroyed. The world and all of its wickedness has been judged. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants And again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried out, amen, hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus. The Spirit is the Spirit of prophecy. What a passage of Scripture. Hallelujah, verse 1. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The world has passed away. This great harlot, she has been destroyed. All her tempterous ways have been eradicated. She has been judged. She is finished forever. This city that ruled and reigned, it is destroyed. And our God reigns. What is worship? Worship is this. That we come and enjoy God. It's an enjoyment of him. It's exalting the everlasting God. And we declare that the prostitute of this world cannot take our minds captive. Why? Because I have been taken captive by the lover of my soul. The Lord Jesus. Taken captive by him. The one who loves us. Who sent his son for us. So we don't need anything more. We belong to our God, the satisfier of all of our ways. We will get our joy from him. And for all of this to have effect in our lives, we have to see this great worship service in heaven. Listen to that. The, verse 1, the roar, the roar of this great multitude. The judgment of Babylon and the heavens cry out, Hallelujah it's over. No more having to live in Babylon. We will be at this great wedding banquet. We will live with our God forever. She is destroyed, verse 3. Smoke goes up from her, and heaven rules. God is powerful, and he reigns. The Lord God Almighty reigns. See him reigning over Babylon here. Chapter 17 and verse 16. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. God here is using darkness against darkness. He reigns over even the darkest ways, and he will bring it to ruin. He is almighty. He rules over everything. He rules over every millisecond at the close of this age, over every little pocket of believers. Chapter 19, verse 5, look at it. Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both great and small for the little fellowship of believers out at Finnecash where I came from, the little numbers that gather there, the bigger church that is here, the little church that's in Indonesia, the big church that maybe meets in China, for all, all who fear him, both great and small, there he is. He rules over it all. So it gives us confidence. He reigns. God reigns. If you leave here tonight with anything in your mind, Leave it with that. God reigns, he reigns, he is on the throne and this one day will come to pass, this great wedding banquet. So as we close, we look at it, we look at the wedding banquet. What a wedding, right? Whenever we go to a wedding, we talk about two things usually. We talk about, is the food good? Has there been enough food? And what did the bride look like? Well, usually for men, we don't really know what's going on. It's usually white and that's about the height of it. That's all that we can usually pick up. Uh, but, but that's the two things, that's the two topics of conversation. Was the food good, and how was the bride? Did she look well? What was her dress like? Well, here in this, we are told in chapter 19 that this is where we're going. So, Christian, this is where we're going. We're going to be part of this great wedding feast. There's going to be, in verse 6, this another great roar, like rushing waters and, and the peals of thunder. What a worship service this is going to be. Can you imagine that? So loud it's like the peals of thunder as we declare hallelujah. Our God, the Lord, God, almighty reigns. Pile them up. Stack them up on top of one another. The Lord, our God, almighty reigns. And here we come. The church dressed, not in our clothes, but in the clothes that Jesus has given to us. Beautiful, beautiful brothers and sisters from Lurgan and Portadown and from everywhere in the whole world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation coming in to be with the wedding lamb. And here we come, verse 19. This is who we are, blessed. Why? Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. Christian, you're invited. You've got your name on a ticket. You're going to this. That's where you're going to be. You're going to sit and be with all of these people. You're going to say these words. You're going to sing them out with all of the might and power and gusto that your lungs can muster up. And you're going to stand side by side with all of our brothers and sisters. So as we close, we may be in Babylon. But we're going to be at this great wedding banquet And we may have a harlot still ruling here who tries to get us to come and to sleep with her, but we have been betrothed to God the Son. And we live messed up lives, broken lives because of sin in a broken world, but we gather in our brokenness week after week to declare salvation and glory and power belongs to our God who sits on the throne, who is reigning, and he will be victorious. So we come here. Revelation 17 begins, verses 1 and 2, with this prostitute who invites people to come and be with her, who takes the king's captive and who commits adultery. But it ends with a very different invitation. Revelation 19, 1 through 10, invites us to this wedding supper. So instead of an invitation from a prostitute, we're invited to be the bride of God's son. Instead of a woman dressed in purple of the empire, we see a bride clothed in fine linen and righteous deeds. And instead of an invitation to immorality, we have an invitation to marriage here this evening. I trust that each of us on the last day will be found in this great congregation singing God's praise. Let us unite our hearts in prayer. Father in heaven, there's so much in these portions of scripture, and we thank you so much for your word to us. Father, tonight there are many things that play upon our heart as we reflect and as we pause and think about this passage. Father, we praise you that our eyes are lifted in Revelation chapter 19 this great wedding banquet where we will reign with you forever for yours is the salvation and the glory and the power that we will cry hallelujah because it's all over and yet father the other chapters remind us of the temptation to walk away from you to sin to run after this world and her lures Father, this evening we pray as we worship here in Hill Street, that we would worship with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strength. Father, that we would worship you in a way that engages our emotions and our minds and our feelings, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would savor your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, teach us how to do it. Help us, Father, Help us as brothers and sisters. Help us as a session and as a a ministry team here in this place that we would lead people to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That we would cherish you in this place. Father, we pray that you protect each of us as we go out into Babylon. As we go out this week, Father, watch over us, guard us, and help us to live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen my man.